0: Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddock. Today we have Dr. Karen Crozier on the show. Dr. Crozier is a proud native and resident of Fresno and is driving innovation and change on racial and environmental justice in agencies and individuals. Dr. Crozier received her BA in psychology from UCLA in 1991 and her MA in education from California State University Fresno in 1996 along with her Multiple Subject Teachers credential and Cross-Cultural Language Academic Development credential in 1994 and 1999, respectively. In 2005, she received her MA and PhD in Theology and Personality or Practical Theology in 2006 from Claremont School of Theology. She is a former professor of practical theology and administrator of faculty development and diversity in Christian higher education. In addition, Dr. Crozier is a former early childhood educator and seventh grade algebra teacher with over 20 years experience in both education and church ministry. Her current community leadership efforts include black reparations, African-American infant mortality, and educational equity and justice. Dr. Crozier is an entrepreneur who brings scholarly activities such as critical thinking, careful analysis, and a radical imagination to engaging racial equity and justice. This was a great conversation, and to be completely transparent, we do get into the weeds of various religious issues here. But we also cover things like critical race theory, gender inclusivity, equitable redevelopment, urban ministry, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Karen Crozier, and Baker will take us there.
1: Respect to the best city left in the U.S. Fresno's best! Fresno's
0: best! So, Dr. Crozier, where do you like to eat in Fresno?
1: Eating in Fresno, mostly I go to many Mediterranean restaurants. I love Gus's Kebabs, this downtown. Uh, I love his friendly style, the ways that he takes great care and the way that he cooks and serves the people. And even through the pandemic, he seems to be highly relational and connecting to us. So I love the places to eat, such as Gus's Kebab. I also love uh, Noah's arc another mediterranean restaurant which is on uh, first in barstow right across the street from hoover and uh, historically chef paul's when i was working more at fresno pacific would make it a, a a stop for lunch and enjoy the way that chef paul has remained and continues to build uh his reputation and service to the community to those of us who love to just get some of that Southern down home cooked meals that fills our bellies, but also as he continues to be more sensitive to those of us, such as myself, who um, has gluten-free or dairy-free diets and maintain and even vegetarians. So those are the three spots that I enjoy dining at in Fresno.
0: Are gluten-free waffles any
1: good? I enjoy them.
0: Okay.
1: You know, <laughs> I, str- talk- I
0: struggle. I struggle with the gluten-free stuff, especially when it comes to pizza. You know, I—I I mean, I'll try it, but <laughs> I like no. my gluten in my pizza.
1: Well, I mean, I love cauliflower. Uh, I oh, think yeah, yeah, California yeah. Pizza Kitchen has a cauliflower-based uh, dough, uh, and I don't eat much pizza because I don't do much uh, cheese. Because uh, yeah, but. uh, as well as um, I do paleo as well, uh, paleo diets, and so I do paleo pancakes, and they are great too.
0: You know, there's a lot of ways to eat uh, less less bread and carbs and those kinds of things. And recently, I've uh, have family members experimented with these banana pancakes, where it's basically just bananas. And then you kind of fry them up a little bit. And so there's a lot of ways to do it. And I, I you know, it's, for me, I, I, I've chosen to take the path of I'm going to indulge some days and other days I'm going to be a good, a good boy. Um, and so it just, it, de- it depends. And I, I, I love me a cauliflower pizza too. So I, I, think there's, I think there's a future because, you know, it's interesting um, thinking about, you know, food and food choices. There's a really famous restaurant in, in New York. Uh, called 11 Madison Park, which is like, it's Michelin starred. It's one of the fanciest restaurants in the world. Um, and they just recently announced that they're going almost all, all uh, plant based on their menu with a few meat products, which is wild to think about. Um, and so I think a lot of things, you know, we're, we're kind of reducing our dairy uh, intake, we're reducing our meat intake. And I think we want to talk about theology and creation, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. You know i think that's uh, a step forward for us and it's 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 complicated right
1: well some people choose that way because they want to be kinder to the environment other people choose that way because they don't have a choice because of allergies and the toxic toxins we place in our foods and even in the ground and so many people having to respond mine it was allergies wheat and flour wasn't good for me. And so therefore I had to find other alternative means in order to take care of me as seeing myself as part of God's grand creation. And uh, how do I make sure I give myself, do need to be mindful as you was raising earlier, the connection between uh, theology uh, and food, and food production and consumption.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, faith and culture. Um, so, as someone with theological training, you know we often think about uh, the way or the role that our faith serves uh, in the world, um, and we've seen bad ways <laughs> that faith can be manipulated uh, to serve oppressive ends in our world. Um, and so, for a lot of us, uh, as we've watched these generations go by, where Christianity is used to serve things like white supremacy, oppression of native people, manifest destiny, all these things. Um, A lot of us are fearful of even bringing our faith into culture, Uh, but there are ways that it can be brought into culture to serve uh, generatively, to create, enhance, heal. Um, So would you talk a little bit about how you see uh, these two I don't want to say they butt heads, but these two forces and how they can meet in a way that's uh, positive for our world.
1: Well, I want to say first and foremost, thank you, Jordan, for naming the ways in which um, Christianity has served towards evil ends, oppressive ends, and very painful ends that we still struggle with in our contemporary 21st century context. And it was in that context that... um, I understand the significance of being part of the Black church experience. Now, what do I mean when I say the Black church experience? Many people don't even realize that Black Christianity emerged because of racism and systemic oppression, because when African Americans didn't even believe to have, before when they was, when we were enslaved in colonial America, We were not even considered to have a soul. And then once the Euro-Americans began to say, oh, we want to evangelize them, they may have a soul, but that doesn't mean that they will be no longer enslaved once they become Christians. So that will become something in the by and by. Richard Allen, who is known as the father of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, him and Absalom Jones and many other uh, freed Africans up north in Philadelphia was in the Methodist Church. Yet they had to set up uh, on the second tier up in the the separate from the white congregants. But one Sunday when they was down praying in the lower level, The white ministers told them to get up because you don't belong here in the middle of prayer. And once prayer was over, there was a black exodus from the Methodist Church, which began the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so my point is the black church began, unfortunately, in light of racism, segregation, that Black people did not even feel valued in worship services with their white sisters and brothers. And because of that oppression, they knew that God was both of their fathers. And so in that sense, you saw faith and culture in action. The uh, Richard Allen refused to submit to the oppression of his wife, minister, and brother, and said, this is not the way that God has designed us to be. God is the parenthood of us all. Jesus is our Savior, Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit is our power. So in that particular context, faith and culture merge in a positive way, on one hand, and then in another aspect in a negative way because the white ministers felt like their faith gave them the right to say you are not equal to us even though if we go back to creation we all were created regardless of our racial ethnic national origin our identity created in god's
0: yeah. I, I remember getting messed up in seminary when I, so I'm also uh, attended a seminary um, and I read uh, Willie Jennings book, the Christian imagination. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but yes, I, I, am. I, you know, and that's when people talk about, you know, faith and culture being separate, I you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, theology was used to build the concepts of race that, that stay with us today. And it's, it's uh it's kind of the it's it's the thing that's unspoken um and that book uh, really opened my eyes to how wedded uh some of our ideas about race are to really bad interpretations of the bible and it it's it's uh it just made a distaste in my mouth for a long time uh and, and thinking about you know is is Christianity does it have any value anymore if it can be used in these really toxic noxious ways um what value does it have but then on the flip side you know you you see people using it for uh for liberation you know i think about james cone or i think about you know some of the people in latin america that used it uh to to free people really um and i it's such a complicated question because i think today too you know we're so polarized that um, it's it's hard to know how to move forward um with these things, and I anyway, so I'm just kind of vamping here on <laughs> how I've looked at it for a while, but feel free.
1: I think you named it correctly and faith and culture that faith is never separate from culture, <laughs> and that's right. what we need to grow aware of that um, and uh, I don't know if you remember in your theological seminary training of the H. Richard Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, where he talks about five different ways in which our faith gets played out in culture. And therefore, it is never separate from, but how do we engage it? His his ultimate norm was that faith should transform culture um, and should never be uh, stagnant or complacent in a way that it seems like culture is dictating to what our faith is or is not. So it's constantly immersed in and yet transforming to the will and desire of who God has called us to be in the world, to be this faithful witness. Countercultural at times, affirming at others, and it sort of speaks to, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, C. Eric Lincoln's and Lawrence H. Mamiya's, the Black Church in the African American experience, where they talk about the African American church has had to have both a priestly and prophetic role that sometimes is in tension. So you talk about the polarities; those are could be seen as two differently opposing, contradictory ends. But the Black Church, because of its role in this country, country and being racialized because of the color of its skin has had to bless America at times because of the land that it's in, At other times have had to bring a prophetic critical lens, as did Richard Allen and those others who were with them to say, this is not right. And so it's both and, it's not this either or that we continue to find ourselves in as we navigate and negotiate the realities of culture. Same way that Jesus did. Right, He didn't come to abolish the law. What did Matthew, Matthew say? He come to fulfill it and give fresh new interpretations for the moment that they found themselves in as being a people who were oppressed under the Roman Empire. So faith and culture are constantly in um, tension and at other times in more congruent and synchronous as we continue to struggle and navigate with how is God calling us to be a witness in the world yeah,
0: yeah. i um I have discussions regularly with uh, my parents um, and uh, about you know a culture changing theology you know and usually these these conversations are typically around sexuality um, you know that's a lot of the a lot of the uh, push, you know, when, it, when they see culture negatively, you know, it's this idea that um, allowing cultural ideas about certain kinds of equality to uh, change certain biblical truths. And you hear that a lot um, these days. And, you know, a lot of uh, more conservative uh, leaning uh, ministers will use that kind of like uh, that narrative uh, framework for uh, ways to reject certain uh, theological ideas by saying, well, culture is moving into our domain and and calling us to change our ideas or our truths. Um, And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to really navigate with, with, with people, because in some sense, I think it is that, you know, we are learning more about human beings and um, we are, Modifying what we believe based on what how reality is changing, but I I, I do sympathize a little bit um, because if you if your ideas if your cultural ideas are so embedded with your theology um, to s- that they they almost become invisible, you know, like you don't mm-hmm. see the the for example the patriarchy. You know, we could talk about women and leadership in, in churches. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing that. Uh, you know, whatever. If you point to Timothy just kind of absent-mindedly to support something that's really a patriarchal idea, you know, like chicken or egg. You know what I mean? And it's it's complicated to navigate that with people. So how do you, how do you navigate those kinds of conversations with people?
1: Um, in the sense that you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, that people whose culture and theologies are so intertwined to the things that culture is shifting into that's no longer consistent with their theology, they're totally oblivious to, is that what you're asking me? Kind so, of, yeah. Do so like first how first you first
0: navigate year. like people that say, well, it's just culture trying to change it. And you're, you're just looking at them like, well, no, culture has made your view to begin with.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, oftentimes those conversations do not happen because uh, people are not really interested in the conversation. And so therefore I cannot engage them in that sense uh, because they're not open to the conversation. But those who, um, many contexts in which I lead, facilitate or teaching, um, I'm trying to approach it from a um, circle process or a restorative process. I, I trust you are familiar with restorative justice principles and uh, have led peacemaking circles around critical topics and courageous conversations such as mass incarceration, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, and providing people through the circle process to speak their truth, their narrative, their perception, interpretation, wherever they may be, but also know that there may be people in the space who will bring an opposing different view but how do you create the space to be present, to speak, to trust yourself in the process, to speak your truth, as well as to listen. So it's mostly in those spaces where people will have the opportunity to encounter themselves and the other in a different way, instead of just trying to hold on tightly to what they believe. And I agree with you regarding the sexuality question it is more um, how do I want to say it? Uh, uh, it is more difficult today because many African Americans, as well as whites, do not support uh the new gender sexuality politics that exist today uh, of our LGBTQ sisters and brothers, who also are created in the image of God in my theology, right? Yet, those of us who are African American and white who maintain know the biblical witness speaks against this uh, is problematic for many, right? So they want to go to a place of love, but how do you go to a place of love when you're not acknowledging the humanity of the person? The other thing that gets complicated about that for me is, I agree with you concerning the sensitivity as far as quote-unquote culture encroaching on those who want to hold that view, Um, and how do we create the space for the tensions, the differences to emerge, and having the opportunity to encounter the other, and that's why I say those peacemaking circle process. The last thing I want to say on that is um, the difficulty is around the uh, we have jumped to gender and sexuality as if that's a new problem when we haven't resolved the race problem. And what I have experienced in many evangelical, white and liberal, conservative and liberal Christian contexts is, there's the move to go to either, I'm for welcoming and affirming congregations, um, I'm um, for loving them as a more conservative, but I think it's a sin But we ain't dealt with the race issue. So it becomes a detour or or distraction from looking at, wow, how can we jump to this social, political, cultural issue, and we have not even acknowledged this. Mm -hmm. We dealt with that. And so what will it take for us to be able to have the capacity to do both and simultaneously? And that's when we get into intersectionality politics, right, Uh, and theology. But we are a long ways off, many of us, in our Christian engagement of faith and culture because of the very individualistic, isolated ways in which we operate and function.
0: So I um, have attended <laughs> very, very white, progressive churches for a long time. And I remember I was, one in, I was in one in Southern California and Cornell West came to do a talk. And I remember how he, in the first five minutes, uh, acknowledged the sea of white faces looking at him uh, mm-hmm. as we were doing some event about social justice or something. And you know, it's uh, it's such a, it's such a funny thing because you have these very well intentioned uh, progressives, uh, but uh, mo- uh, you know, oftentimes are totally blind to uh, how they're participating in something uh, that's uh, perpetuating. You know the most segregated segregated day of the week, right? Sundays, and so right. it's 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 a complicated one, and it's one that uh, definitely we can explore. But I I want to transition to talking about your book, Um and I I haven't said her name out loud, so I think it's Fannie Lou Hammer, not Hamer, right? No,
1: it's the latter.
0: It's it's Hamer. <laughs> yes. Ah oh, man, see when you only read something, when you only read something, and then you have to, you're forced to say it out loud. So Hamer. Um, can you talk a little bit about who she was and um, how, how you think her philosophy and approach to, to politics, social justice, theology uh, is still relevant today and can be used to fight for justice nowadays?
1: Betty Lou Hamer was the daughter of a sharecropper, uh, born in 1917 in Mississippi. So the bottom of the United States of America, who did not know that she had a right to vote. She did not know that she had a right to vote until she was 44 years old, when she was in a Baptist church that uh, Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, Ella Baker's uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Jane's Farmers Congress of Race equality had come together to provide a mass meeting to Black Mississippians to encourage them to interpret the size of the time and their right to vote and their right to create a different world in light of the various forms of oppression. They were a voter disenfranchisement. Black people in Mississippi during the time of Hamer in the 1960s and 70s Constituted in many of the counties 70 to 80 percent of the people of the residents, but only maybe less than five percent of those who were able to register to vote because they were tactics by state sovereignty rights, even though the Constitution said that black people had the right to vote. Really, only black men in 1870 do the 15th Amendment, women. Mostly white women got the right to vote in 1920, yet Black women really did not have the right to vote until the Civil Rights Act of of 1965, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came into effect. She fought to change that reality of the ways that disenfranchisement, political oppression, and voice had occurred for Black people in Mississippi. And she went to go to try to register to vote because she had to pass a literacy test. And Black people were not being educated in the English language in, in Mississippi in the 1960s. She really didn't. She had to read the Constitution. They had to pay poll taxes. That was only applied to Black people. When she finished registered, trying to register to vote, she didn't pass the literacy test. Um, she was evicted from the plantation. So she became homeless. Then she was shot at by night riders when she went to a neighbor and friend's house to stay before her husband took her away um, to another family member she was beaten in a winona jail uh, for exercising her right to vote fannie lou hamer was in a i can't say in a nutshell <laughs> she's too big um, she was a christian freedom fighter who believed christ was a revolutionary out there with the people where it was happening and that's what she considered god was all about and that's where she got her strength and she provided us a framework to understand the significance that faith is not separate from culture nor politics but faith can be infused into politics in meaningful ways that allows your voice to be heard in the things that you value to have its place in the public sphere
0: Well, it sounds like she couldn't be more relevant. As uh, (laughs) some of these states in the South are like, "Nope, we don't want that many people voting in an election again." Exactly. Yeah, I I was just listening to NPR this morning. They're talking about um, you know some of the some of the things that have passed in Florida recently, and uh, you know, of course, they're just trying to undo everything Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. Of course, and you know, it, it so it seems like she couldn't be more relevant for today. Exactly. Yeah. What, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's. And I would
1: add that she was not only engaged in electoral politics, she was engaged in grassroots community organizing. She launched a freedom farm of, of, of helping people to understand the significance of the fruit of the land and the the production of their labor as sharecroppers, they didn't have access to that. They was constantly being exploited even when they were supposed to be sharecropping with the plantation owner, but the plantation owner always set prices and what they had to buy for their resources to be a farmer was always high and they only had one distributor, the white man. The land on you. So you had all these things with working from sun up to sundown and still not having the right food, the right shelter, the right means in order for the basic things of life. So she knew poverty, she knew creativity, and she knew God, and she knew love. That was the other thing. She was grateful that her family and her church taught her how to love and to have self-respect even in the midst of such uh, oppressive hostile conditions yeah so yes she's relevant today in so many ways
0: <laughs> i you know the, the, i talk about i teach u.s history um and i you know sharecropping comes up a lot and you know my kids know what i say when i say sharecropping i just say slavery by another name you know, and there's all these things that we need to kind of re, <laughs> rename and rebrand uh, because to to illustrate what they actually were, um, which was uh, keeping people confined. Um, but I, I do want to switch gears to another section uh, that I call overrated versus underrated, and so I'm going to throw out a few different topics to you, and you can tell me whether you think they're over or underrated, um, and. If if it's neither, maybe they're just uh, correctly rated by the world. Uh, so I'll I'll start with uh, a simple one. Um, living in Claremont, California, overrated or underrated?
1: <laughs> oh my goodness, I love living in Claremont, California. I don't think it's overrated. <laughs> underrated.
0: All right. Why?
1: Uh, no, I don't think it's overrated. I think it's a. Uh, underrated. So why do I? Yeah. So uh, Claremont, I love the homes in their unique style. They don't have the track homes uh, development like you see in many of our urban areas. It's very small and nestled and you know everybody in the community. There's connection, there's great East, oh my goodness, down in the Claremont Village. Um, And while it is also known as, you know, where the Claremont Colleges are, there is great diversity there. And um yeah, it was a it was a nice space. I enjoyed being in Claremont. Wow, well, I'm about to bring tears to my eyes about to <laughs> my time there. Yeah. Well, I
0: um I lived in Laverne for a year. Yeah. And so that's right down the road. And right. of course there's nothing to do in Laverne because Laverne is just a blip on the 210. Uh, but We would roll over to Claremont and go to that downtown area to eat. And I just, you know, my friends that lived, you know, kind of on the west side, they would refer to where I lived as Arizona, um, which I, you know, I took offense to personally. But um, Claremont is kind of one of those gyms that's out there way like you're going to, you know, San Bernardino. And you don't even know that if you stumbled off the freeway around there, that you'd walk into some amazing culture, amazing food mm-hmm. and beautiful architecture. Like you said, like it's, it's a, it's a beautiful place to live.
1: And the trees. Oh my goodness. Landscapes. Yeah. So thank you for the question. <laughs> yeah. Me back right. now to memory lane.
0: <laughs> next one. Are you ready for the next one? Uh,
1: Let's do it.
0: The next one is um, overrated or underrated language as a tool for inclusion.
1: Say more what you're asking than that question.
0: So I'm asking you, um, you know, is changing language to be more inclusive over or underrated?
1: Oh. <laughs> oh, is changing language to be more uh more specifically, what comes to mind as I'm understanding your question, Jordan, is uh Yes, we need to change language, especially because all men, all, all, all the Blacks... Oh, how can I say this? Where, where am I going with this? I'm thinking of a particular book that was done uh, back in the 1970s by Black feminists. Uh, and it states all the men are Black and all the women are white. But some of us are brave, That's the title. <laughs> and so when dealing with racism, the perspective is, oh, this is only a black man's experience. When dealing with sexism, oh, this is only dealing with the white woman's experience. But when you are neither black man but black but neither uh, a white woman but a black woman, and then they were even further because they was a black women who self-identified as lesbian some of us are brave so language is not uh changing language is not overrated yeah. it yeah. needs to happen but it needs to happen in a way that um is sensitive to the to the ways that language harms people Um, and all as well as being sensitive to the ways that just changing the label without changing your heart doesn't help. So that's similar to policy. We might change the language and policy, but where is your heart to follow to really get at, to the intention of why this change occurred?
0: Yeah, language has power. Words have power, a lot of power um and i you know i i hear stuff on from different perspectives you know particularly because the pronoun thing has become such a a dominant thing uh, right now. And even, you know, I teach middle school and even my kids are, uh, middle schoolers are giving their pronouns in their zoom meetings. And so it's, it's very pervasive thing. And, you know, I hear some, uh, (laughs) some caustic adults kind of denigrating it, but it's, it's, it's important to have that it's, it's, it's part of your identity and without a structured identity, it's hard to, it's hard to feel like you have a grounded place in the world. And so for me, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a small gesture towards, uh, you know, giving someone uh, this place of comfort um, in that they get to choose who they are. And so anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole different can of worms, but um, I thought I'd bring it up. The next one I have for you is is um, the value of urban ministry, over or underrated, urban ministry.
1: <laughs> Oh, um, wow. I think it's overrated. I'm um, really going to go back to the previous question.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I just, I keep the train moving. I keep the train um, moving.
1: Because you um, was looking at the... Uh, gender identity politics and i sort of brought that up and at the same time yes it speaks to self-determination how do you how do people find their sense of self and identity in a space to where language does not constrain them but allows them to be free to show up with who they are but then we need common language because if everybody's not understanding who you are we're still having conflict and disconnections and and not finding a sense of common ground in that. And I think that brings me to your third one around uh, urban wow. ministry, because I just recently discovered, and I don't know how true this is, I gotta do some more research on that. That urban ministry within the context of which it emerged was white people, evangelicals trying to reconnect to the city with in, in light of trying to give value to the city after you had white flight, and yet not being sensitive to the people—black people, brown people—who had already been in those spaces ministering to the people, so it doesn't become a phenomenon of value until it is said, "Oh, we are doing urban ministry."
0: In college, I was part of this group called Intervarsity, and they—they <laughs> would—they would have these uh, events where we do like I I forget what they called them. They had funny names for them, but we'd go, we'd go, you know, I went to school in San Francisco. So we'd go into Oakland, you know, to go do urban ministry. And (laughs) it just, I don't know. I just, I, I, it felt, it felt like I just felt uncomfortable um, because of the implications of what we were doing. Um, And I, I, I definitely see value in, you know, taking white kids like myself and showing them different worlds that you know, I'm from the suburbs, you know, and I, I I definitely see the value in that. And I think but the problem is is that it's 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 really just a thing for the people coming, not the people exactly. there. Exactly. And so it's it's just like it's I, I remember um I wrote this big long paper about this incendiary about this group in LA that uh, is called LA Gang Tours. And you could get on like a double decker bus, and they drive you through like Watts, and like East LA, and you could tour gang neighborhoods. (laughs) I mean, it it all seems kind of of the same vein, right? It's this Mm -hmm. kind of voyeurism um, of urban poverty that I, I, you know, is, it's just and I don't know if it's something that the church needs to get rid of necessarily. I think maybe it could be reconceptualized and redone, but it's some, there's just a lot of it that bothers me. And it's, it's, I don't know, I, I, I wrestle with it. And, you know, the people that I know that are involved in it are good people. Um, but I, I, I just think it's maybe a, you know, it comes from a place of uh, well intentions, but also maybe a bit
1: misguided. Well, yeah, I I agree. That's why I say it's overrated, and that a lot more needs. I think it. Needs, well, you say it's misguided. A lot of value. I think it's back to the connections because I when I was at Fresno Pacific, and there was a course um, under one of the master's programs. It was urban missions. <laughs> And one of the course was ministry um, among the marginalized or with something like that. And I changed it and says, no, you are not just coming to give. You don't even know who is there. So you are coming to learning how to be alongside the people. Mm-hmm. And you have to be received in the way and thinking that you are not coming with the answer. So it brings that Messiah complex. That probably was your particular degree of discomfort like oh i'm supposed to have the answers to these huge problems and conditions
0: yeah Yeah. you're gonna gonna love my next topic uh overrated or underrated using the adjective missional
1: (laughs) (laughs) um highly problematic uh is overrated why um because it does not account for in the ways that have been done the harm, the violence that has been perpetrated on people, places, and spaces in the ways it has uh, been constructed and uncritically um, analyzed. You yeah, just uncritically accepted as, oh, I'm on God's mission without seeing the human that is already there and who you're going to encounter in the process, but only seeing them as object to be missionized, not subject in which you can encounter.
0: Yeah. I've got two more for this section. Uh, The next one is uh, redevelopment projects in downtown Fresno. Are those overrated or
1: underrated? It's basically, I don't trust them. (laughs) I don't trust that they're really there for the people and I hope I'm wrong. Um, and so I think it continues to go towards the developers and to pad their pockets. And we haven't found a way yet to say, how is this really going to help the people and how the people really going to contribute to the construction of what revitalization means?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I love a good brewery and restaurant like anybody else, but You know, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, helping the soul of a city, uh, there's a lot more that goes into that than making a new office building, opening a new restaurant, opening a place that serves alcohol. You know, there's a lot more than just that uh, to help a city, uh, you know come together and and so it's it's complicated because i do i do think it's a positive thing but i i think it's uh, a solution to a different problem um and you know it's it's maybe uh, in terms of our priority list uh i feel like there's much harder bigger fish to fry uh in fresno than uh giving us more places to go out to eat on
1: friday night so do you think the revitalization is about low hanging fruit? This is what we're going to start with. And then we're going to get to the bigger fish that.
0: Probably. Uh, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's trying to uh, create a, something that's attractive uh, to businesses to want to come down there. You know what Bitwise is doing in some of those groups. And I, and I definitely think that can have a positive externalities to the community in terms of, you know, uh, work, but who that work is going to go to um, and those kinds of jobs and who that stuff is for um, is the question that I have. Um, and, you know, when I go down Fulton Street right now, uh, the, the most vibrant places are the places that are selling, uh, you know, uh, some Mexican cultural uh, clothing and different places like that, and like, are they are they uh, are they part of this uh, project of redevelopment, or are they the people standing in the way? You know what I mean? Right. So. Right. <laughs> all right, last one I have for you, um, and this is not really a, maybe an overrated or underrated, but what you think about it? Um, there's an increasing move uh, to move seminaries online. Do you think people can get? proper theological and practical theological education purely in an online setting?
1: I remember 20 years ago when this question was brought up and there, there were those who were just going after the money by going online to get access to more resources because they was floundering as academic, theological, seminary institutions and others as, no, we want to choose to provide the in-person more quality delivery that we feel our institution is based on. Today, in this context, um, I think you would have to consider what an online experience of theological education could be. And at the same time, um, how do you do it in ways that still cares for the people and cares for the product and the work and not just say, oh, I just do this to stay alive so yeah. I'm not asking yeah. your question either or the thing that we're going to
0: have to wrestle with you know as uh it worries me when clergy have less and less training uh you know um just because you know people and I I I've, I've gotten into to you know, I don't want to say feuds but like conversations with uh pastors in Fresno uh sometimes and you know, I I, I worry about uh, the decreasing uh, training and the inferior educational products that people who are giving people their sense of purpose in life and are telling them what the Bible means. I, I worry about that, um, and I worry about that because religion is so crucial in people's lives, and I want I want educated people telling them what that old book means, you know, and it, it it just, it worries me is, is, is why I brought it up um, because I'm seeing that slippery slope.
1: Well, I would offer humbly that, yeah, theological education is whether it's online or person is, was in a decline even before Mm COVID-19 pandemic um, because people just were not showing up. In many ways because it was not relevant and and there was the younger generation like your generation you ended up the seminary how did you end up in seminary and where are you now how are you using your theological education
0: that's that's yes, fair, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> i you know okay so I've, ma- I've i brought up this anecdote before and i'm sorry for listeners that have heard it a billion times but i'm just going to say it again um so i i went to fuller seminary uh in pasadena and I, um, I remember uh, they were shooting a commercial um, that I turned down because I didn't want to be in it because I was embarrassed. Um, and in the commercial, it was like a banquet table and there was a, a bunch of people sitting at this banquet table and it would, it would show their name and like their profession below, or maybe it was just their profession. and. I remember the camera pans to each person at the table and only one person underneath their little name placard said a pastor. <laughs> everyone else was like writer, Hollywood producer, social worker. And, you know, and that's the joke at that place is that, you know, everyone comes in to be a member of the clergy and only half of them actually end up doing that. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, from my own place, you know, it it is, it is challenging uh, to, to be in that world right now. And especially when you start to, you know, when you're over, ed, you know, I'm going to say over-educated um, and then you, you show up and some of the the things bother you and you don't know where to place that uh, anxiety or that discomfort. And uh, you just kind of have to push it down and keep delivering the service. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not, I'm, I don't want to lay back on the therapy chair right now, but you know, it definitely is, uh, for me, it was a challenge just to see what it could be. Um, because I just, yeah, I got, I, I got a little cynical after that for sure.
1: Right. And when I was at Claremont school of theology, not too far from Pasadena, um, even though it was known as a liberal institution, United Methodist-affiliated liberal institution, um, I found it to be liberal fundamentalism um, in the ways that it had its own values that it wanted to hold on to tightly and there was no other room. And oftentimes because it was so stuck in the head, many of us would say, instead of exegesis, you know, it would be E-I-X-I-T, exit Jesus, if you had some degree <laughs> of faith, right? Yes, <laughs> and yes. so, seminary education, theological education, yes, was transforming individual pastors, our clergy who would come through, our, our students who would come through, but yet it wasn't connected to the church. The masses of the people who feel the pews. And that was problematic for me. I was committed, and I still am committed. I went into Claremont School of Theology on my application saying, I want to be able to build bridges between the the academy, the church, and the community. Now, 20 years later, I know from experience, wow, that was not naive, but not knowing, wow, that is a huge task and requires so much because of the ways that people are fearful of education because of the people who are in theological education they've been wounded by more of their conservative church communities um and the ways that education in our culture is privileged over those who are not educated sort of your concern how in the world are you going to be preaching to the people and you haven't had any type of you know training to understand the significance? Are, Looking at how do you gauge or measure or be aware of the multiplicity of views that exist on what you're sharing, and at least to have some sense of grounding to say, oh, it's not just just black and white. There's so much more out there. And so how how do we get that type of education in ways that helps pastors to be true to themselves and their calling, as well as when they enter into their congregations to bring them alongside with them. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that is that that is uh a huge question that I continue to grapple with in life and am committed to um as a pastor. And I think the other thing that you're speaking to with the different roles and titles people had um is that we need a broader model, different models of what it means to be a pastor. We're very limited on what constitutes a pastor, and so therefore Many of us either get turned away because that's not the role that we feel God. I was one. I was called, I believed I was called to preach in the pastor in 1920, but because of my gender in the black church I was in, wasn't allowed to accept my call. But when I did finally was able to accept my call, when I came back home in Fresno and was under the leadership of, of uh, Pastor being in West Side Church of God, I finally was able to say yes to my call, but I knew I didn't want to be a pastor who was in the church on Sunday mornings, preaching every Sunday. I knew that there was something more different and more life-giving for me in what I said God was calling me to than that model. And that was the track that I began to pursue, though I didn't know what it was, I knew that it would come if, if I just continued to trust God. So I think that's the other thing that you're speaking to as well. What are the broader pastoral models that are needed in order to support and contain people who do not see what is up there before them every Sunday morning as being sufficient or luring for where God is calling them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I like that idea about, kind of re reframing what we think of as pastors or clergy or whatever um, and seeing that, you know, there are different roles for people that are not just you're standing up there delivering a sermon or you're, you know, conducting a funeral or visiting a sick person in a the hospital. There's all, you know, life is much more, uh, you know, there's much more layers to life than just that, and I I want to talk about something uh, that I, it wasn't listed in the questions I sent you, but it's been an ongoing uh, conversation that I had. I I feel like we can we can talk about it a little bit here. Um, so in uh, a few months ago, I uh, kind of somewhat publicly uh, had had some issues with uh, something I heard a, a pastor of a large church in Fresno talking about. Um, and that pastor was talking about the dangers of critical race theory, uh, getting into the church. Um, and, uh, what bothered me was maybe less that idea and then uh, and more just the lack of understanding about what it is. Um, and I, you know, I, I often think that, um, things people don't understand are tend to be the things they're afraid of. Um, and I, I, I don't think I did a very good job of of articulating what it is and why it's not a threat um and so how would you how would you have a conversation uh with a pastor that sees something like that as as a as a potential threat and they're and uh, you know obviously imagining that they're open to listening <laughs>
1: right <laughs> And imagine, I don't know, what, what was they naming as a threat, per se? Yeah. What was the specific, can you give me some more information? What was they naming well, as a threat? Well, it's it's just
0: this idea that, um, well, the idea that I encountered was that critical race theory uh, or anti-racism, that, and those were being used synonymously, even though they're different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, um, that, that these ideas are pro- uh, um, proposing a... Uh, non gospel solution to problems or evil in the world. So it was, it was an interesting. It was an interesting uh, argument that this, was, that this
1: person
0: that this person is making. Um,
1: Did this start from a, a, a biblical or theological perspective? They're coming from the perspective that right, uh, race, and in it itself as a phenomenon must be uh examine interrogated in the ways that it plays out in our culture and in our world in the ways that certain people races get privileged and others get disadvantaged so critical race theory assumes that uh, race is not just this natural phenomenon it's socially constructed and as well as continues to play out and therefore in the issues of power and analysis of power and privilege that gets plays out must be named and engaged so that we can be exposed so that we can transform it based upon our greater awareness in the ways that race gets plays out in our social, political and cultural realities.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I I think, you know, it's it does come back to a little bit of this kind of gap you were talking about a second ago. Um, uh, this kind of distrust of academic communities. and um, And that could come from a place of insecurity. Maybe you don't have that education. It could come from this idea that, you know, educational institutions are, inherently liberal or more progressive. And speaking of that, uh, one of the funniest things that I saw recently, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, the CIA is trying to rebrand themselves as an inclusive community, <laughs> which is ironic given their, given their history, of course. But they put out like an ad uh, with uh, uh, like a, a newer employee at the CIA uh, that comes from a Latina background. And just talking about how inclusive the CIA is, and I'm just thinking in my head, like, "Oh my god, wow. <laughs> you know like how, how uh, that's that's a fascinating uh, yeah. influence of things right there, but um yeah, I think there is this kind of distrust of you know academics, educational institutions, and you know i I, I think it is true. I think educational institutions tend to uh, lean left in in a lot of ways, many departments um, and but i I don't think that, you know, even if you're more conservative, you should not listen, you know what I mean? Like, I, and it's, it's, it's such a complicated thing. And I, I don't have a solution. And I, you know, and I know that argument doesn't do much to contribute uh, positively to those kinds of conversations, but it, 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 uh, it feels like that kind of blanket uh, description of a, something that's really there to help us understand, you know, how the world is broken, uh, why that would be such a negative thing. Um, but alas, you know, it is one of the challenges of, of, uh, being in Fresno and, you know, it's kind of segregated communities and, you know, how these echo chambers that people live in.
1: So, yeah, it also speaks to, um, I was just thinking of science of any theoretical paradigm is not welcome in many of the conservative evangelical congregations, yeah. regardless of race or ethnicity. And so any type of theoretical paradigm, of course, it, it, it did not originate in the church. We did not contribute to it. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Mark Knoll, uh The Scandal of Evangelical Christianity. I think that's mm-hmm. one of his books. Well, he speaks about that. Or uh, the, the Crisis, one of the books I read, dealt with the crisis of uh, the Civil War, where he names the way that evangelical theology could have emerged as something more provocative and more robust after the Civil War and the issue of slavery, but it did not.
0: So we're almost out of time, but I've got two final questions to ask you. One, um, where do you like to hike?
1: I don't have a favorite place to hike. Um, I just like to be as best as I can outdoors near water and near big redwood trees.
0: Mm. Okay. I can, I can think of some places then, Um, you know, uh, (laughs) water is getting less and less uh, easy to come by these days
1: Exactly
0: (laughs) to hike around. But there are, what I was going to say is there's some great, uh, it's not really, I don't know if I'd call it hiking, but maybe walking trails on along the San Joaquin river that have become my like spiritual paths these days, Um, you know, just kind of enjoying and being near, even though the river is essentially a trickle now, uh, (laughs) after, after we dammed it up, um, it's a trickle, Uh, but it's a beautiful trickle, and you should enjoy beautiful trickles sometimes, you know, Uh, and just appreciate what you have, even though it's, it's not a lot, and there are still plenty of beautiful egrets and plants, and, uh, you know, birds galore along that uh, along that river and there are other places too if you go further in the mountains uh king's river too is are some of mine um to close what are uh, what are a few books you'd recommend to listeners uh either books that have been important to you in your life or you know about any of the topics that we covered or just what you're reading recently
1: well uh, i want to promote my book uh fanny Lou hamer's revolutionary practical theology racial and environmental justice concerns you can go there and get it on my website, Jewelofjustice.com, and I can autograph it for you if you desire. It is a great read of not only a phenomenal woman, Christian leader, activist, but also one who really cared for the people, regardless of their race, ethnicity, class, or gender. And um, Another one along that lines who I also engage in the book is Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. He was a minister, pastor, but of a much broader theological and spiritual sense who provides us with the understanding of Jesus who he was in his first century context and how that relates to all oppressed people throughout any decade, and the significance of what Jesus did when he said that the kingdom of God is within us, and how Thurman appropriates that for his own sense of healing and empowerment to deal with the complexity and oppression, hostility of racism during his time from 1899 to 1981. What's this like? The third book that I am reading, it is called uh, Women Church by and Theology in Theology and Practice by Rosemary Rafford Ruther, who is a leading white feminist theologian, and she provides a great historical and theological analysis of the practical movement that occurred amongst white women in the Roman Catholic Church, and some in in Protestant congregations as well, in their ways to try to find different spaces of finding expression of who they were as a church in response and separate from the oppression of patriarchy that occurs in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Is there one more that I want to name before I go? when we were priests, um, when women were priests. Um, Karen Joe Turgeson is another book I would like to say to the people. Um,
0: so, like you said before, uh, the website is jewelofjustice.com. Go buy the book. Um, and my final question for you is uh, what are you working on
1: next? Um, what am I doing next? I'm in the process of collaborating with. Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School and designing a consultant program and then a class around ecojustice justice and the disinherited, Ecojustice justice of the disinherited. So it was language, culture, theology, and identity is a subtitles, And uh, looking as well to build, uh, I do liturgies for Christian women, which is a virtual space for women who are leaders in the academy, church, and community to have the space, especially during this time, to experience healing in light of the various social, political, cultural, and personal traumas we are experiencing. And how do they still find their sense of agency to know that they are of the church, as the church, to find new creative ways during this pivotal moment to see differently and to be differently. So, yeah. That's great.
0: Well, I, I've had a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me.
1: You're welcome, Jordan. I appreciate the invitation. And I was a second grade teacher, a seventh grade teacher, and I believe that teachers should be anointed. So, see, that's broadening the notion of a clergy. I mean, you should be not only anointed, but should be ordained because there
0: you There we go. Now we're getting to the real topics right now. I am so important and you should leave it with this. Uh, teachers are the best. So anyway, uh, have a good rest of your day. Take care. If you got this far in the podcast, no, no, no. I first have to say to you, thank you for listening. But I second want to encourage you to consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts it goes a long way to convincing someone to push that play button for the first time. So please, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a minute to leave us a rating and review. It really helps. And if you're feeling so generous, you can always support us on our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best uh, by leaving us a financial contribution. Both of those go a long way to making this podcast sustainable. Until next time.